and welcome to the 21st episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. This week I'm speaking to Chris Sweeney, feature writer at a number of newspapers and magazines and author of Mad Dog Gravison, The Last of the Footballing Mavericks. In the course of our conversation, we discuss the book itself, the experience of writing a monograph-length work, and the practicalities of publishing. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure, and if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. Next week we'll be talking to Jonathan Irvine, Senior Lecturer in French at Bangor University. Before that though, it's Chris Sweeney and Mad Dog Ravison. Enjoy. <laughs> I'm joined today by Chris Sweeney, author and features writer. Chris, how are you doing? I'm very well, John. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. The first question on this podcast is always contextual. So give the uh, audience just a a sense of how it is that you ended up writing about football and what it is that you do as a day job. Um, I I started actually working in um, newspapers. I was at university and wanted to get into newspapers. So I started doing some work on the university newspaper and through one thing or another, I ended up working in tabloid journalism um, as a features writer. So I'd interview bands, singers, um, authors, TV people, anyone really that was sort of, uh, you know, relatively well known or did something. Um, and I just kind of continued with that. Um, and then from there, I went in, uh, from there, I was interviewing someone one day about, uh, about uh, he was a BMX guy from Glasgow who had um, had a movie done about his life. And I thought, that's quite interesting. And I approached him about doing a book and we did a book together. And then I'm currently on my new book, which is about a footballer called Thomas Gravison. Um, and I went into that. It was really just using my, my skills for, for seeing what would work for a newspaper. I really just sort of transferred that to, well, you know, what would work for a book. And obviously you need a lot more legs for a book. But I think when a subject's so deep, sometimes when you're writing for a newspaper, it's very hard because maybe you're getting a thousand, if you're lucky, 2,000 words in a newspaper, which is, which is rare nowadays. Um, so it's hard to... I know it sounds a lot of words, but when you're trying to compress someone's life or when they've done quite a few things into that, it's, it's quite difficult. So that's kind of what attracted me. My previous experience, my, my previous experience, my skills, and I thought, I could take this to books and that's what I've tried to do. So would you say that that was the, that was the impulse then, the, the ability to sort of have more words to work with and ability to go a little bit more in depth? Yeah, I mean, ability to... You know, my my whole job in journalism when you're working on features is about ideas. You know, if if the interview or the the concepts not got not interesting, then it doesn't matter how well you write. It's going to be a waste of time. You know, it's not it's not it's not like political journalism or hard news where you're just reporting facts. If, if there's no interest in it, then you know what's the point really? You know, so it was my skills using that, and then I thought, you know, in a book, you know, you, you've got so much space to to really tell someone's stories. So when you find something rich, you can really you know milk it for all it's worth. If that you know, without sorry, maybe a bit of a maybe that's a bit of a cliche, but you know, you know, you can really delve in there and, and get into it and spend time and really explain it all. Whereas in newspapers or magazines, you, you don't have that luxury. So, I think the newspapers are good grounding for me in the sense that you know you, you learn how to work the deadlines and research and factual stuff. So you're not just writing for the sake of it. You, you you've got parameters, but it's nice when you've got that discipline then to come out of that and you know you can sort of spread your wings a bit and use the skills you've got, but use them in a in a different way and that's what you know that's what i'm trying to do with the books so mad dog gravison the last of the modern footballing mavericks is out this year 
It is, yes. It's uh, it's actually out now. It's just went on sale today as we're speaking. So yeah, it's out uh, on Amazon and uh, some good bookshops, some bad bookshops, and uh, <laughs> some some in between bookshops as well. So yeah, it's, it's how people want to find it. They just go on the line and um, type it in, and I'm sure they'll find it somewhere. Yeah, give us an overview of the book itself then. Um, it's essentially it is about a footballer. Clearly, um, Thomas Gravison is a footballer who was a very well-known footballer on the pitch. You know, he played for Celtic, he played for Everton, and then he obviously signed for the most glamorous team in the world, um, you know, Real Madrid. He also played for Denmark at World Cups and European Championships. So he was fairly well-known as a footballer. But he's got this other whole persona of, you know, a real maverick, real interesting character that is maybe not so well-known. So, so, so the book's about him. It, just that he happens to be a footballer is... Yeah, I mean, I would have written the book if he'd been a footballer or a fiddle player. It's not really about football. It's about him and him being in football and how football affected him and things like that. So I think maybe it's, it's more of a biography about someone who I found interesting and a bit of a trendsetter and, and someone who's definitely cut from a different cloth uh, than most people we meet in modern society today, particularly famous people. And the subtitle there, obviously, The Last of the Modern Footballing Mavericks, indicates that there's a little bit of an angle to the biography. So could you talk us through that? Yeah, well, I just feel as though when you look at uh, football today, um, and and most sports are like this, you know, where, where there's a lot of money involved, the the athletes, the players, they're I wouldn't say they're one dimensional, but they don't either. They're not able to express their personality, or they don't show it. But it doesn't come through the same way. You don't have these kind of cult heroes anymore. Yes, you have great, great, great players and great athletes who are very fit, strong, and. You know, I'm, I'm sure they can, you know, physically they're better than what they used to be and, and, and all these things. But there's not that same intangible quality that fans can connect to, supporters can really enjoy. And in the book, I mentioned, you know, a few people like, you know, maybe Andre Agassi had it in tennis. You know, he's not been successful as, say, Pat Sampras or Nadal. But he's got that. There's a certain thing about Andre Agassi that, you know, people like. There was a certain charisma in Formula One. Uh, there's a guy called Kimi Raikkonen, who's one world champion, won only the championship once. But Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, these guys, they don't have the same charisma. They don't connect with people in the same way. There's something about them. So that's really what, you know, attracted me uh, to Thomas. And I think I think he is like that. There's no there's no longer guys like him in football. Nowadays, a lot of the, the players are, you know, they're brought into these academies at the age of 9, 10. Um, there's even rules now for... If you sign a player under the age of 16, how much money you have to give to the other club, depending on how long he's been there. And it starts from when he was age nine. I mean, it's crazy in some ways. They're almost molded into being these athletes. Um, so I think that knocks a lot of the personality out or the people that have those personalities are kind of sidelined because they don't fit into that regimented uh, system. And Thomas was someone who didn't go through that. So, you know, that's why he was able to be the person he was. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on whether or not you think the, I mean, obviously the media has played a role in that. I think obviously players are, are now PR trained to within an inch of their lives. So I wondered if you have any, any thoughts on that angle about the, this sort of disappearance of the footballing maverick. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think people should be confident about who they are and comfortable who they are. And I, and I don't think there's any, I understand the media can be quite harsh and things like that, but I think if who you are is who you are. I mean, I, I wouldn't be comfortable trying to put on a persona or trying to, you know, dampen myself down and things like that, you know. So I don't think there's a, I, I think, I think people are all mature enough and intelligent enough to, you know, to, to, to be the people they are. And I think Thomas was, he's an example of someone who, who was the person he was and, you know, he got on okay. And if, you know, I think you can. I think you can overthink things, and I. I don't think there's any need to be. You know, I think you know, just be be yourself. Don't worry so much about the media and your image. I mean, if if that's what you're worried about, maybe you're uh, maybe you're doing the wrong job. Talk to us a little bit about the the structure of the book. Why is it that you decided to structure it the way that you decided to structure it? 
Well, I thought the best way to do it um, was almost to give you a sort of documentary style uh, look at Thomas's life. Um, so I start off just briefly talking about, you know, the world of football and how it's changed with money and, you know, like I've just touched on previously about the academies and, you know, the, the you know how, how now players are almost assets. You know, all these foreign companies buy footballs. I mean, football clubs like Manchester United, um, Liverpool, Chelsea, they're, they're all owned by foreign owners, you know. So the idea was to sort of set the scene and then put Thomas into that scene. And, you know, it starts off with him in rural Denmark growing up there. And, you know, he comes from a, he started at a small club called Viola, which is a small town in Denmark. And a lot of the players there, you know, they've had some well-known players, a guy called Alan Simonson, who won the first European player of the year in 76. He comes back to, you know, to live in that small town. And there's basically a sort of a, a reoccurring theme of they have a quite, they're quite successful at producing players in that era and they all go away and then they all come back and almost pass on the baton. And it sort of goes on and Thomas is sort of the last one to sort of come through with that. So he set the scene there. And then I, I almost try to take you as close as I can inside his mind. Um, people around him, you know, what it was like for them, how, how they experienced him. And, you, you know, we go through his various clubs until his ultimate sort of sudden retirement and moving to Las Vegas and then re-emergence as a, as a supposed multi-multi-multi-millionaire. Um, so it's t- taking you through his life, but with other people commenting and pointing out things to you that maybe you haven't seen, because it's all very well me saying it, but I'm not inside those dressing rooms or I'm not... I'm not the expert. They are. So I was very help- I was very lucky that a lot of people reached out and were, you know, were keen to talk about them. Yeah, that brings us on quite nicely to the the notion of uh, I guess media access. Um one of the things that you point out earlier on in the book is the fact that Thomas Gravison is is fairly media reticent and you use that I think to your advantage. Your argument is, you know, you have to approach your subject differently when when they aren't willing to to just do exclusive interviews and 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 offer a seal of approval for a biography. So to what extent did did this lack of uh, access influence you in the way that you wrote the book? Were you put off at all by the lack of access at the beginning? Um, I don't think so. I think maybe for a split second, but then I thought, you know what? This is actually, in some ways, a good thing because it was actually someone else who was... I was working on another project and some and someone else said to me, you know, if, if I tell you how humble I am, it's not really genuine. If someone else tells you, then it means something. And I thought, it's actually a good point. You know, it's, there's no point Thomas going, oh, I was this, I was this guy, I was that guy. You know, I think actually when other people tell you, then it's, you know, there's a certain credibility to that that the other person can't give, you know, because obviously they're not objective. So I felt in this type of book it was good because I wanted to look at the man. I didn't so much want to know oh he did this and then he did that and then he did this that's not the kind of book I wanted I, I wanted something about him and I felt the best and ironically the best way to do that was not to have him involved although probably when I started the project I probably I probably would have taken him if he'd wanted to be involved but um, he didn't um, and also I think the good thing is when you when you go online now and you look at Wikipedia you know you can get most information about people their date of birth and you know where they went to high school and where they did this and where they did that and I think with Thomas he's one of those people that that's not out there you know he doesn't have social media his Wikipedia page doesn't really bring to life the kind of character he is so I felt there's actually something to be added by writing this book by talking to people sort of going back to the old-fashioned way which doesn't mean it's better but I think it's quite refreshing when you find someone where there's actually stuff that you can bring to the public arena that's not all been out there that hasn't all been discussed before it's not all online you know it's, it's not just re rewriting his, uh, his Wikipedia page 
So I found it quite a good challenge, actually. And I think it was much more interesting for me than just listening to him. You know, sit, me, me and him sit in a room for three weeks, him telling me and I writing it down. You know, I think, I think, I think, I think the book's better for him not being involved and probably more accurate. Mm. I think one of the interesting issues that is facing all sports journalism uh, at the moment is this idea of access and the fact that, the, as you say, the more money goes into football, the the more control the clubs have, and and as a result of that, I think we're seeing uh, clubs take control a little bit more of their of their media presence and so you're seeing journalists going in-house you're seeing um, players being able to run their own media channels or run their own podcasts or run their own social media platforms and I guess historically the the media has always got its authority by having this sort of access so I I wondered whether or not you could maybe touch on that and um, I guess my question would be did your publishers have any questions when you essentially came to them and said I've I've not got any access to this guy there was when when I first uh, pitched the idea um, I think they thought he was going to be involved as a sort of a you know I was almost going to be the ghostwriter and write alongside them and stuff and I said no no that's not the case and I think they weren't too uh, you know there was a wee bit of a kind of hesitation <laughs> so I kind of had to I, I explained it in more detail I explained how I thought this could work um, and again that goes back to my my newspaper training where I think well what are we trying to achieve here is this interesting you know and I, and I basically gave them a pitch or along those along those lines and they were they were quite happy with it in terms of getting media access uh, for for someone like Thomas it's very difficult because he has no social media he has no website he has nothing so trying to track him down was tricky i did i did get there eventually but well i got very i, I got to someone who his official sort of agent who was speaking to him so i was able to contact thomas um but it, it was tricky and I, and i do think the in-house media uh, you, you mentioned that as well that that is a thing that's becoming more and more prevalent and the problem for me is it's not objective you know so i, I just find it a bit odd that you know, I think clubs and all this, they are players that they want to be represented by that because we all know it's not objective. We all know they're not going to say anything bad about it. I mean, in the, in, in the in the piece I talk about Celtic and that was his final club in Glasgow and, you know, there's some, I wouldn't say negativity, but well, it obviously ended, it didn't end very well. So I do write some negativity, I guess, about the club and how they handled that situation, which we never, which we never have got from the club themselves. So I do think that's a worrying uh, thing and I, and I don't understand why footballers aren't confident enough just to be themselves and you know you can only you, you, you can't write lies about someone if you don't say it you can't report it I mean you know and I think journalists also got to take a fair bit of the a fair bit of the uh, responsibility as well I think when you gain someone's trust as long as you in my experience if, you, if you're professional you're honest you know you're going to get the same back and in this book I actually had a couple of footballers who did me big favours who they phoned other footballers for me and said would you talk to this guy I've talked to him he's, he's a decent guy and that really helped because when you're approaching footballers out of the blue you know they don't really know who you are so they're thinking well you know why do you want to talk about Thomas they automatically think he, you know they, they're, they're thinking oh he wants me to dish some dirt about him which I think is probably the precondition to think that because maybe there's a lot of kind of cowboys out there and I see it myself there's a lot of people I, I never understand that I mean to me being in the media is a long term career you build relationships so you can do your job effectively not you know get in there grab one story make the most of it and then uh, you know it all blows up in your face I mean I don't understand what kind of logic that is so I think there has to be a, a bit of for my, I'd like to see a bit of change on both sides more responsible media and this pulling back of this you know non-objective reporting because I don't think it serves anybody mm, interesting I'd uh, like to move on to talk about the writing process you've written a book before you wrote about the BMX star John Bulchins I'm sure I'm butchering the name no I think I, I think that's fine no, I think I think Bullions Bulchins I think you're uh, you know you're as good as I got it and I was <laughs> I've written it many times so don't worry <laughs> 
So you wrote that book. Was there anything you did differently this time around writing about Thomas Gravison that um, was was the result of the experience that you'd picked up the first time around writing that book? Was there anything I did differently? Um, I don't know if there's anything I did differently. I think I probably, um, I think I probably tried to add a bit more, add a bit more detail a little bit. I think the the Billions book that I wrote, um, he was involved, so there was obviously a lot more close relationship between him and I. Him and I wrote that together. Well, I wrote it and he spoke, you know, kind of thing. But you know, we read it together, kind of thing. Um, and he was quite. Um, I, I, I just. It was quite raw. You know, we, we kind of wanted it to be a bit like train spotting, you know, train spotting the movie on a BMX bike. So the idea was to be quite raw. And I tried to make that by making the writing very minimal, like stripping out anything we didn't need. So it was very kind of boom, 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 like sort of in your face. And I think maybe that put some people off. Maybe not. I don't know for sure. But that, that was the idea of that book. It was supposed to be quite hard hitting because he's had a, he's had a hard hitting life. And I, I didn't want to water anything down. Uh, but I felt with the Gravison book, um, I thought mm, maybe we've got to, I've got to open this up a little bit more. I've got to soften this a little bit because if I write in that style, it won't work. So they are written in two different styles. It is my, it's all my writing, but there are, there are different styles. And I think you've got to be mindful of the person you're trying to portray. So with Thomas, I was trying to portray more of a kind of documentary where we're sort of going through this life fast paced, but it's interesting. It's colorful. It's alive. Whereas with John Bullion's book, it's a, uh, black and white it's you know the guy's almost having a hell of a life and you know hanging on for hanging on to this roller coaster kind of thing you know that's that's basically what his life's been like so it was a much more raw much more stripped back and i think maybe when i, I did have a discussion with one of my uh, editors and he and i think he was sort of criticizing me for he says oh no you can't you get your writing to reflect the subject but i disagree on that i think you want to set the tone and portray the person through your writing not just write the same way all the time Let's talk a little bit about the time scale issue. So, when you're when you're writing a book, how much of time did you spend planning the book? How long did you spend researching, and how long did you spend writing? Planning? Oh, not not long. Uh, probably probably my publisher will hate hearing this. So probably uh, I should probably tell him I spent months and months, but no, not really. The planning I don't find that difficult. Like I say, that's that's kind of what I. Don't see why I excel in. That's probably a little bit big headed, but that's kind of what I do. You know, that's that's the essence of my job. So yeah, the planning's quite the enjoyable part for me. Getting the idea and then I start to see it come together. So maybe two or three days. You know, I can I can see what I want to do and I can see where I want to take it. And then what I do is I speak to everybody and I get all I get everything together. And then only then I begin writing. I don't write and then add stuff and keep speaking to people. I do all of the research. Uh, and I get it all together, um, and then and and then I write, and then I obviously review it and check it. But that, that's kind of that's kind of how I go about it. I've, I never I never listen to interviews while I'm writing or start adding bits in that I didn't think about. Once I've got it all together, then I write because I feel as though if you start adding bits in as you're going, for me personally, you can start to then get a bit get a bit lost. And with this book as well, I, there was a bit where I started adding a bit too much in, and I thought, no, this this is you can get a wee bit because there's no word count with a book, or there's virtually no word count with a book. You know, you can you can sometimes get a wee bit too uh, you know in love with yourself and think, oh, this is great, and start you know start adding stuff in that you know, and and and, and you might find funny or you might find interesting, but does everyone else? Maybe not. So yeah, that, that, that I would say that the, the vast majority of my time is spent in the the researching. Part I would say seventy five percent of my time is spent researching. And how long did it actually take to write them? Well, the whole project probably took probably took me from start to finish about eight months. So I would say to write it, uh, maybe maybe two months to write it. 
I, but that's just that's, that's that's just me actually typing. You know, it's not. I'm not. I'm not doing any research at that point. I've got everything I need, so it's just putting it together. Um, you know, and obviously, maybe that doesn't sound a lot. I don't know, but again, from my background of writing, and that's what I do. So, taking interviews, transcribing it, looking at it, I, I'm probably quite well versed in that. Most of most people, it won't take me that long. Whereas I know a lot of people when they first start, they're having to. You know, it takes them a long time to get their head around that, but. I find that bit, you know, it's a bit laborious transcribing, but it's good to listen back to everything. So I always listen back to everything, get my ID together, have all my material and then write. So I would say about two months. There was then, once I gave it to the publisher, it does come back and there was there was a few back and forth and a few uh, few angry emails and things like that, of course, from both sides. But as to be expected, um, you know, to, to whip it into shape. So they do have a part to play as well, of course, and it's not, it's not 100% just comes out my computer and then that's exactly what you see on the page what about the writing process what does it look like for you do you have set routines are you flexible with your approach do you use a laptop longhand do you have a study space or a place that you always work at or are you happy to go around i don't know coffee shops and, and work from there no no i never do that i never do that i can i can never understand how people get good work done in coffee shops and like not i always have a i have a desk um i've actually now moves i've actually moved the house since i since i wrote the gravison book but i had a i have a I have a set desk i had a laptop i had a desktop computer everything i would write on there the only thing i may do is i may put headphones on and listen to some music maybe um you know maybe music this might sound a little bit uh, i think probably pro- pro- probably sound like i'm sort of disappearing uh, into sort of uh, been a bit bit too bohemian but maybe music that i feel reflects him i know that sounds a bit maybe a bit stupid but uh sort of quite upbeat music stuff like that you know um so i'd, I'd listen to songs probably maybe five ten songs that i would play on repeat so i'd listen to that so i'm not thinking about it um you know and then i would just write i, tr- I try to write in the morning I try to get up, you know, I, I like to go to the gym, so maybe work out, start writing, you know, get a good part of the day done, maybe take a break and do it, then do a bit more at night. A lot of times I would, I, I would maybe, if I was on a good roll, you know, maybe I'd, you know, maybe earlier in the morning. Um, but I, I wasn't setting myself goals like, oh, you must write this much today, you must write that much today. I, I think that's a bad way of doing it because, you know, you only really get one shot at this, so you don't want to start, oh, I must have a, I must have 4,000 words done by four o'clock. I can't see how that's, uh, for me, that's not productive. If it's not coming and you're not feeling it, step away you know let's move on to talk about the, your experience with publishers so how how did you go about getting the book published do you have a literary agent and and what was the process like with pitch publishing uh no agent um because the first book i did was both my books have been with pitch um so i did that and the reason why i went with them is because when i got the idea for the bmx guy john bullions we he had a there's a movie we made of his life so the idea was to simultaneously get the book as the movie was being finished. So we had a really short space of time. So I wasn't sure if we were going to get anything, but I contacted a couple of publishers and Pitch came back to me almost immediately and said, we like this. Um, do you think you could have it done by September? And I think this was February. And I said, yeah, um, I think I think we can have it done. Yeah, yeah. So without them, that from start to finish, that book was really quick. You know, I mean, I had a, I mean, five months, five, six months were completely, I think I had to give it to them in uh I had, had to give it to them in August and February where we still hadn't even started writing or hadn't even spoke to, hadn't even done any interviews with John and we hadn't even started planning it. So that was very quick. And from there, I had a good experience with them. I liked the process. They, they left me alone to uh, to do it. You know, they obviously they, there was someone who read it and then we, you know, there was a few changes suggested here and there, but they weren't trying to sort of backseat drive the, the thing, which I think is, you know, is difficult in a book because there's so much goes into a book that I don't see how, any, how anyone, it's not actually at the coalface, so to speak, 
can tell you what to do. It's not like a newspaper where you can quickly change the emphasis or chop stuff around. A book's not like that because obviously if you change something in paragraph four, it may have an impact in what happens in paragraph 18 because that, that instance may be reviewed or, you know, so you've got to look at the whole thing. So they were very good about that. Uh, very professional. You know, I don't, if, I, if I email them, they, they get back to me straight away. You know, just left me alone, really. Well, once I signed it, I don't I don't speak to them again or don't hear from them again until I give them it. So we're minimal contact, but I think that's what you need, you know. you got to get your big boy pants on and, uh, you know, go do the work. I mean, I'm, I'm the author. It's down to me to produce it. It's no down to them. So, yeah, you know, that's what you got to do. you got to get stuck in and do it. And I, ha- I had a good thing with them. So, you know, that's two books I've done and I've got a third book um, I'm working on uh, with a singer who I can't actually name at the moment, but that's not in the UK. That's outside the UK, and him and I are doing that together um, without a publisher. More, we're going to write that together, and then we're going to present it to publishers. So I'm doing, I'm, I'm trying something different with him. So that will give me an idea of, you know, open up, give me a different look at the industry, if you know what I mean. That was interesting because I was going to ask you if you had a future book plans, but you're clearly, clearly, well on the way. Is is the idea then to to continue writing books for the foreseeable? Um, I would think so. Um, yeah, I would think so. I mean, I've I've got this book with my, uh, you know, with this this singer over in the over in North America. So you know, we're a good bit through. We're a good we're a good way through that book as well. We've you know we've done a few things. We're obviously we're pretty close to having it finished. So that that you know that'll be a good eye opener to you know to to you know to to see things differently. And again, he's got a life story that I find interesting. So again, it's it's not so much that he's a singer. It's more his life story with Gravison and with John. They're all just people that I find interesting. So yeah, I think the foreseeable future, I'd, li- I'd like to do more books. Um, I may try and, you know, sort of try to maybe move into some sort of TV stuff. Maybe that's something I can maybe try and adapt my writing for, you know, documentaries, that type of thing, bring the, you know, bring things a bit more. It all depends on the, it all depends on the response to the books. And if, you know, if you can make a good living at it and also if you can, you know, if they're worth it, if people are interested, there's no point, you know, there's nothing worth than spending a long time on something nobody's interested. You know, you de- at that point, you've got to face it that, you know, I'm not doing a good job at this. I've got to move on. So hopefully I'm not in that situation. But, you know, you, you've got to think about it. I don't think you can just think, oh, well, I'll just keep bashing out books the rest of my days because if no one's reading them, what's the point? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think there was a general consensus that books were dying out in the last decade or at least, uh, I guess, with the rise of uh, of technology. There was this assumption that um, books would, would become a thing of the past, but they do seem to be booming at the moment. So is there, is there any sense in which you feel as though the book is intrinsically uh, a good medium in which to transmit knowledge and, and write? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the book is, uh, for particularly for people telling their story, I think, and whether that's your sportsman or a politician or a, a newscaster, whatever you may be, I think it's absolutely vital because what I'm learning, you know, you know, particularly the, the, the book that I'm working on with, with the singer in North America, the, the thing that's really interesting here is that we can sit down and we can spend a bit of time. And there's certain things that maybe are a bit sensitive that, you know, maybe you have to look at how, how would I how would I really like to say this? You know, whereas with with an with an interview, even what we're doing right now, once I say it, you know, you record that and it's out there. You know, there, there there's no time really to be I'm not saying distort the truth, that's not what I'm saying, but you know, really think how do I want to say this? Because you're talking about personal feelings, you're talking about issues that are, you know, that are important. So it's it's quite a hard thing just to distill, you know, bang, straight away. That's what I mean. That's exactly how I meant it. I mean, I, I'm married. I, I frequently have disagreements with my wife. Maybe I say things that I don't mean, you know, or it came out the wrong way or it's not quite what I meant or she's taken it the wrong way. You know, and I, and I think that's something that the book really can stop happening. You can really, and you also you've got time to to explain things. You know, maybe you don't like someone or, but there's there's nuances. You know, I've got, you know, I've got people in my life that I don't particularly like, but 
sometimes I like them, sometimes I don't. There's nuances to things. It's not just, you know, black or white. And I think this immediacy that a lot of maybe the younger generation are used to with YouTube or, or Twitter, it's bang, it's, you know, yes or no. There's no there's no in between. And I think it's great that books have made a sort of comeback because I, I do think there's a lot for that. And I think it's great. I mean, I've read quite a few sports books of late. And I think it's good that some of them have actually now got a bit more depth to them. You know, this, they're now interesting. You know, you're now getting proper writers, proper people have got a passion for it. And, you know, they're, they're bringing something out of these people. Yeah, I think really books, um, I think it's glad they made a comeback, but I can see why. Because in today's digital thing, everything's so immediate that once it's out there, it's in thing. I mean, I, I've done an excerpt from my Gravison book that was on a, you know, website. And even today, I can see it's been on about five or six other websites, kind of copy paste. And they just, they, you know, these people that are just running these websites, they just copy paste and stick it on. Now, if that was untrue or that was a total, total rubbish, then it, then it goes all around the world and it's immediately all oh, well, that, 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 that's gospel. You know, I, I do think that the book offers you that chance to, you know, really give a detailed, thought out, proper analysis of a situation. And I think that's invaluable. The final question on this podcast is always about the future. So I'd be interested to hear, I think, obviously you, you your your interest in the in the media and your work in the media is broader than the sports media so i'll pitch it more generally i'd i'd be interested to hear what you think the future of the of the media looks like and how you fit within that future well the future of the media well um that's a that's a difficult one but i do think that um and it kills me to say it. I love newspapers. I think newspapers are the best value product in the world. You know, whether it's 30p or 50p or £2, what you're getting for your money is, I mean, when you think about it, it's phenomenal, you know. But I don't think newspapers are going to be with us 20 years, you know, 20 years' time if we make it. I mean, I've seen the decline of budgets in, in, in my industry and I've seen the decline of jobs. And, you know, you can just see the, the, the content as well because, you know, people are stretched or it's all this digital click stuff, you know, it's... I think newspapers probably will will die out in the form that we know them. But hopefully that opens up a new channel for, you know, other people. You know, that there's now, you know, you, you do see certain magazines, certain periodicals being sort of relaunched or, or certain things coming out. There's a football magazine up in Scotland uh, called Nutmeg Magazine, which is kind of, you know, long form writing. They're doing podcasts where it's they're, they're taking time to speak to someone a bit like yourself. You know, you're sitting down, you're talking to someone, you're, you're spending a bit of time with them. And podcasts, I think, are taking the place of newspapers now because you're no longer getting that from newspapers. And a lot of newspapers, it's, you know, you can see the quality is going down and that's why, they, or no one's interested. But with the podcasts and things like that, you're, you're getting a bit of detail. You get a bit of uh, interaction. You get a bit of insight from the person. So I think they will grow. And I think, and hopefully, I think those type of, like I'm saying, those maybe magazines or th things where you can read, I think it's going to become more niche. I think we went from the point where, you know, we had newspapers, you know, groups buying up loads and loads of newspapers, buying up all these, because I mean, that's why all local newspapers are struggling, because they've all been bought up by these big multinationals. And then what happens is budget cuts. So it's like, well, instead of having, you know, five reporters, just have two and cover and, uh, you know, do the work of five and just, you know, just cut it down. There's less advertising, so there's less pages to put in the paper. But I think we can go back to a niche thing where people are now sprouting up with these niche things, these podcasts or fanzines or periodicals or, or small things and I think that's great I think if we can go back to more targeted things you're getting more experts you're getting people that are more into things instead of a, a Johnny Altrace which and I'm probably flagging myself because I was a Johnny Altrace at one point I'm working in the tabloid newspaper I'm writing about everything some of the stuff I don't have a clue what I'm writing about you know I'm relying on someone to tell me oh well, you know how does this work I remember writing a story on petrol stations that were shutting down around Britain. Now, I know nothing about that industry, absolutely nothing. And I was trying to talk to the experts, but it really was just me 
trying to deduce what they were saying and, and putting it together. And I, and I, I don't think that's great. And I think maybe with the, with, the, with the newspapers going down, I think hopefully we can unleash and sort of target that more niche thing, get more experts back then, maybe make it a smaller industry, but more people. A bit like how music used to be, you know, there's used to be loads and loads of record labels and it used to be quite a small cottage industry. And then it became like massive, you know, big record labels and you lost that vibrancy. You know, you go back to the 70s when, you know, you had the Rolling Stones and Rod Stewart and, you know, the small faces and all these people around. It was it was a much, it was much more individual, you know, but it, it, then it took off and it became so big that it lost that, it, it lost its kind of... Uh, I guess authenticity a little bit, and hopefully, I think with me the media is changing, we can go back to that. People like yourself, you know, start putting time in and enjoying your work and and feeling good about it. You know, that's always going to produce better journalism and better writing to me than someone right have those five articles finished by five o'clock so we can file them up online because uh, we you know we want to get as many clicks. Well, Chris, thanks so much for for coming on and giving us a bit of an insight into into how it is that uh, Mad Dog Gravison appeared and and. Your thoughts on the media, greatly appreciated as well. Can you give us one more chance to hear about how we can get hold of the book? Yep, you can get it on uh, Amazon. And my, and my publisher is Pitch Publishing. You can go on their website and get it as well. And like I said, it should be in shops, so you can have a look online and, you know, just type it in, Mag Dog Gravison, and hopefully it should come up or uh, you should find it on a, in a, a bookshop on the sports shelf. Uh, so, yeah, it's out there for you, and I hope everybody enjoys it and uh, takes something from it. At this point as well, I give the, the, the guests the chance to give me their uh, social media details, but I, I suspect you aren't on social media. You suspect correctly, yeah. I'm not a social media person. I'm like Thomas. I'm, a, I'm in the background. There's no social media. I find the social media thing, I can expand on it if you want me to. Do you want me to tell you why I don't you do social media? You can if you want. <laughs> yeah, uh, social media to me is, um, if you've got something to say, it's great, you know. Um, but what I'm... In my job, or what I do as a job, I'm, I'm writing about someone else and the work is what is important to me. You know, that's what I want people to read. Not so much about me. It doesn't really matter about me. It's what I'm writing. So I feel as though having social media is, yeah, in, in my world, I don't see how it's useful. I know post journalists would say, oh, you're crazy. You make a lot of contacts that way and this and that. But I'd, I would uh, I would challenge them to tell me how, how much of their work comes from social media. Yeah, you might look at other people's social media and get ideas from them, but... I don't know if it's necessary to have it. And a lot of people, I, I think a lot of people use it as their, um, you know, they work for a big publication and they have social media. If they leave that publication, their social media profile is, is, is gone because there's, they don't have any, they don't have any power anymore. It's only the, it's only the institution you work for that has the social media power. It's not you as a person if you work for a massive newspaper or magazine. So I just feel as though I'd, li- I'd rather the work did the talking than me. There's nothing really, it's not about me. It's about the work. Well, it's the first time I've, uh, I've had a social media section get taken over like this but I, thanks very much for that <laughs> i apologize i apologize <laughs> well chris thank you so much for for coming on and good luck with the the book coming out today all the best thank you very much for your time thanks a lot thanks for listening to the football media podcast with me john mckenzie if you enjoyed the episode please subscribe rate and review on itunes or follow us on twitter at footy media pod we'll be back next week with jonathan irvine but until then have a good week goodbye